Lord, our rock and our redeemer, our eternal Savior, our one and only God, would you, Lord, teach us as your people to follow and obey you? Would you teach us to love you more every day and to love others as we love ourselves? Would you help us to understand that your word, Lord, is not only true, but it is active, it is piercing. It revives the soul. That it teaches us, that it trains us, that it makes us to be people through the power of your Holy Spirit, to be people who are more like your Son. Lord, can we trust in you for that? Can we trust in you that your word will lead us to the places that you've called us to go? That your Son will that is done through the redemption of Your Son. It's done through the power of Your Holy Spirit. God, would You teach us today from Your Word? Would You help us to be people who are constantly being changed, who are constantly being transformed into the image of Your Son? It's in the name of Jesus we pray and for His sake. Amen. I hope that Often as I am sitting in a Sunday morning service, I, I think about my own self and my own response to worship, to the Word of God, to prayer, to communion. Uh, and I hope two things for me, and I also hope those two things for you. I hope that when I come here on Sunday morning, when I'm a part of a missional community gathering on Sunday night, when I'm opening the Word of God during the week, that I'm able to do two things. That I'm able to put distractions off just for a moment. Just for a moment. That I can set the world aside just for a moment. Because I, like you, have a crazy schedule outside of today. Outside of my times in prayer, outside of my times in the Bible, I have a crazy schedule just like you. So my prayer is that I would always be able to set that schedule, set that time, set my burdens away just for a moment. And the other thing is this, I pray for you and for me that when we're here on Sunday mornings, when we're in the Word separately, when we're at missional community gathering, that we would be people who would never stop being amazed and never stop believing in the power of God to change us through His Word, through fellowship, through prayer, through memorizing His Word, that we would never lose the awe of the mighty God who changes us and we would never forget the channels with which He chooses to change us. Can we be here on Sunday mornings and distracted and still grow? Yes. Can we still grow missing Sunday mornings occasionally, missing reading our Bible occasionally? Yes. Is it the way God prescribed it? It doesn't appear to be that way. God prescribed us to be together. He prescribed us to believe in His Word. He prescribed us to teach it to others. And he, he responded with the answer of, I will make you more like me through this. If you don't believe me, ask someone who's been a Christian for longer than 20 years, who's been, a church, who's been in the church for longer than 20 years. Ask someone who's been 
in the church longer than 30 years and ask them if God still speaks to them in a new and fresh way every time they walk through the doors of a church gathering. Ask them if God still speaks to them in a new, new and fresh way when they open the Bible, when they pray. Would we never lose the awe and wonder that we have by a God who saves, but not only that, a God who gives life through His Word, through His precepts. Today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 20 through 33. Exodus chapter 23. Blake is going to help me out next week by preaching. And um, honestly, it's just I have a huge week next week, through the week, and uh, I needed help. And so he's going to do that. But Blake is sort of going to lay out for you next week about seven chapters. That's not true. But, But we are going to skip several, several chapters. And so the premise of next week and the following weeks will sort of be explaining those chapters without actually preaching on them. And we are, even though we're in Exodus chapter 24 and 23, and Exodus has 34, 36, I can't remember now, chapters, oh yeah, because we're skipping more, 40 chapters, there will be two large sections that we're skipping. So we'll be done with Exodus before the summer. Um, So be conscious of that. But we're in Exodus chapter 23, And there's a little shift that happens here, Exodus chapter 23, 20 through 33. As we think back to what we've studied over the last month or so, these things weigh pretty heavy on us, right? We've talked about that in depth. I've discussed in depth how it's weighed heavy on my own heart, and I'm certain it has for you. The the precepts and the laws and the, uh, the, the concepts that God gives us to follow. But I don't, know, I don't know if we've discussed it enough from the perspective of the Israelites. Can you imagine how they felt? I mean, they aren't long out of hundreds of years of slavery, and the Lord is installing a system of government. Like, this is not just like, for, for us, this, the Ten Commandments, oh, these are good to follow. Let's, let's live for these, and let's, let's try to follow these. For these, it was their governance. It was what they would follow strictly and... Um, without reserve, or they would be punished for it. On a much larger scale, what is happening here is a revolutionary war-type moment in the life of the Israelites. They are adopting a new government. They are a people just out of slavery, essentially. I mean, this is what the, this is what the settlers of America came from. They're trying to adopt new laws and codes, and and just as the book of covenant is drawing to, the clo- uh, to a close, the Lord says, Oh yes, um, you're about to fight a large-scale war. No military prowess, no training, no thousands of years of gold stores being built up to, to afford a war, to afford a new government. I'm going to send you to the promised land, he says. But it's going to come with battle. It's going to come with fighting. It's going to come with hardship. The Lord reassures them though, and we'll see this in our text in just a second, the Lord reassures them that even though there was no physical prowess, there was no financial dominance, there was no long history of reigning in the world, 
that the Lord would send His angel before them and that He would conquer the lands in front of them, that He would fight for them. Today's break from a new covenant really shows us one of the many glimpses of God's motivation in rescuing His people. God here is revealing His nature to His people as a means of motivating them to keep His covenant, but to also press forward to the promised land. God is revealing His nature to His people as a means of they keeping His covenant, but also to keep pressing forward to the promised land. Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water. And I will take your sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against it. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, that's the Mediterranean, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You shall not dwell in their land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. There's such an important story here today that we need to see. But I I can't get off my mind This movie that I loved when I was a child. And I might have mentioned this before in a different context, but um, it's the story of two foster children that used to sneak into Angels baseball games. It's called, and it's classic, if you haven't seen it, you should see it, Angels in the Outfield. Now one of the boys' name was Roger, and and Roger's father was sort of still kind of in the picture, but uh, he wasn't. And one day Roger asked his father, Dad, when, when, when can we be a family again? And his dad says, well, when the Angels win the World Series or something like that, or the pennant or something like that. Well, the Angels were bad. So, and they were historically bad. They were bad at that time in real life. They've been bad a long time. They're pretty good now. But um, he said, he was basically saying to Roger, never. 
Well, Roger prayed for the angels, and, and the rest of the movie, or Ray prayed for the California angels, and the rest of the movie is about real angels, led by Christopher Lloyd, showing up and helping the California angels win, base, win, base, win at baseball. I think they ended up winning the World Series. I don't exactly remember. Now, during that movie, they came, this is, this, I just need to get this out of my system. It really has no pertinence to the, to the message here. But during that movie, they, they came up with a sign to show, that, to show that the angels were there. And so the boy from the outfield would go. So the angels were there when the boy from the outfield did that, uh, presumably what we all would consider an angel s- symbol, I guess. Um, I don't know. They, they didn't have like, you know, it would, would it have just been do, good to do a baseball sign. I don't know. But um, he constantly, this movie is constantly, you have the angel. They're here. You're, you're going to win. They're here. It's over. The game's over. They're here. Till the end, the, in the end of the movie, the, I, th- I think this is how it goes. I should, maybe I should have watched it. To, um, again, no pertinence. I just need to get this off my chest. At the end of the movie, the angels are not there anymore. But they believed so much in the work of the angels, the work that was being done for them, that Roger gives the signal at the end of the movie. The angels aren't there, and, you know, they, they win. Now, that illustration falls apart there because that's like, you won on human spirit. Good job. Um, that, that illustration falls apart there. But, but I have trouble disconnecting because in my mind, there's some Israelite running down the lines you know, before they're going in the promised land. Uh, I'm glad we don't do video yet. Um, uh, uh, do, running down the promised land, uh, running through the promised land, giving the angels in the outfield symbol. On a less goofy scale, this is sort of what our text is, is kind of implying today. Not just, not just any angel, though. Not just any leader. But the Lord today is giving his people that angel symbol. Because knowing that the angel of God was before them was a constant reminder of many things about the nature of God. Which was the ultimate sign for them that they had no fear. That they had no worries as long as they stuck with the plan. Now, I have that, now that I have that out of my system, our text today is really good, and we probably could have done without it, that little story. But in our text today, it's, it's about the plan of God, the power of God, the action God takes, the protection from God, the future that He holds for them and subsequently us, and His care in making His people more like Him. As I look back and think on how I came to the conclusion of my own theological beliefs, uh, just in case you didn't know, I I have a tendency to follow uh, Reformed sort of Calvinistic theology. And as I look back at where uh, my own theological beliefs come from, angels in the outfield comes to mind. I'm just kidding. That's, that's not true. But as I look back at my own theological beliefs, I know I could get Drew to laugh, um, I see that they have been heavily influenced by the nature of God. My own theological beliefs have been heavily influenced by the nature of God. By the fact that He is never changing. By the fact that He is unending. That He is all-powerful. And the list could go on, but we're not talking about just the attributes of God today, so I won't go through them all. But honestly, friends, it was a more intensive study and reading of the Old Testament 
that brought my views of Reformed theology and Calvinism into full circle. We read all throughout the New Testament of God that is described like Reformed people described. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He is a God who is the God of the Alpha and the Omega of salvation. But evidently, the plain text of Scripture is not convincing enough for some. But then you start reading through the Old Testament and seeing how congruent the Old Testament God is with the New Testament God. You would have to intentionally deny biblical and Reformed truths to separate the two. Just like the New Testament God, the God of the Old Testament, calls people unto Himself. An entire nation, in fact. It's funny how people have never denied the fact that there is a chosen people of God in the Old Testament, but not a chosen people of God in the New Testament. It's funny how that fact has never been talked about. How that just kind of goes unlooked at. Unstudied, unexamined. He called the people in the New Testament. The New Testament God calls the people in the New Testament. He called just like they were called in the Old Testament. He called them based on no merit of their own in the Old Testament. They had no choice in the matter. Just like in the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament goes before his people. He fights for his people, and his people are completely dependent on them. We see multiple instances where if the people of God just even momentarily turn their back on trusting in God, that things change, that things go awfully for them. This was not just a sign of God's complete power, but it was a sign of our trust and need to depend on God in every aspect of our lives. That includes salvation. Just like the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament has preordained victory based not on human will, power, effort, but based on His divine ability to fulfill His plans and His purposes. One of the things that put me over the top with Reformed theology is that I was, willing, I was easily willing to accept the God of the Old Testament, who was absolutely a Calvinist, but that I was not okay for the God of the New Testament being so. And that was incongruent with me. Oh, and by the way, if you didn't remember, the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are the same. Today we see more fulfillment from the Lord, of His nature, that helps us to, even if you don't want to take a Reformed view of the nature of God, it helps us to see how God is, you know, I will concede to you, more Baptisty people, that He is as Reformed as He can possibly be without just going ahead and saying it. Today, we see more of a fulfillment from the Lord, more of His sovereign control and more of His leading. We see these truths about His nature and what the Lord told His people about the angel of the Lord. I want to give you one main idea today and then we'll break that main idea down into a few points. The, the main overarching idea, the main overarching theme is this. The angel of the Lord teaches us about the sovereign nature of God. The angel of the Lord teaches us about the sovereign nature of God. This idea is what we'll base our points on today. What the angel of the Lord teaches us about the sovereign nature of God. I want to start by coming to some sort of conclusion of just who the angel of the Lord is. Now, we've discussed this before, but not everybody was in here probably when we did that, so it's good that I put this in here today. 
We know from past studies that the word angel just means messenger. That it is specifically someone or being who is designated with a message from God. Or even in other instances, a message from another source like the devil or the, you know, the enemy, the adversary. So who is the angel of the Lord? Well, there are two sort of considerations of who the angel of the Lord that was going to go before the Israelites actually is. One consideration is that the angel of the Lord is Joshua. Joshua is actually another name for Jesus, which sort of would make sense there. The the names are sort of the same. And um, Augustine proposed that it would fit perfectly for the person with the divine name in the Old Testament who was to lead his people to the earthly inheritance. He would be a type of the one with the same name who would lead to an eternal inheritance. So some consider that the angel of the Lord is Joshua. A second consideration is this, and this is the one that your pastor holds to in every instance where you see the angel of the Lord. I believe it's possible that Joshua is mentioned here, um, or even alluded to as secondhand, that he is seen maybe as the physical person that is mentioned here as a type of Christ. But I believe this text, and pretty much any time the Bible mentions the angel of the Lord, is referring to the second person of the Trinity. I believe the Bible is referring to a Christophany, to, to Jesus. I believe it's giving p- the people of God more than just a glance at their new leader, Joshua, but it's giving them the assurance of the presence of God, the actual presence of God. Exodus twenty twenty three twenty one says, He bore in him God's very name, or ESV, my name is in him. This was very important because the name of God did not just denote identification. The name of God denoted His very presence. Think about all the names that we break down, right? Jehovah Jireh. What does that mean? The Lord is provider. That denotes a presence. That denotes Him being with His people. The names of God. God with us. You know, we could go through all of them, but they... But the actual name of God denoted his presence. And what God is saying is not just my name will be with the leader of your people. He is saying my presence will be with you. As a matter of fact, I will go before you. So I believe in this case that the Lord is literally the Lord. It is Jesus and he is going before his people. We also see this as the Lord swaps personal pronouns. I don't know if you noticed this as you read the text, but he is giving this message and says, the angel of the Lord will go before them. And then in the middle of the text, it changes to first person. It says, he, he, and then it's first person singular, I, I will do. And it's talking about the same being. Talking about the angel Lord. He will do this. He will do this. I will do this. This is not the first time this has happened though. Where's another instance that this happened? All you astute people. Okay. Yes. The sacrifice. What else? That was not the one I was thinking about, but that is one. It's, it's around that time. What happened? The burning bush. The burning bush, right? It said an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses... In a burning bush, right? And then Moses says, the angel of the Lord talks to Moses. He's a messenger, a messenger of the Lord. And Moses says, who should I say sent me? 
And the angel of the Lord from the burning bush says what? I am. I am. And then if that wasn't enough information for you, later on Jesus says what? Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I believe it's neat to think of Joshua as a messenger of the Lord, as the leader of his people. But I think it's more accurate to know that when God says, I will be with you, the angel of the Lord will be with you, my name is in him, he's saying my very presence will be with you as you fight with these people. It was the angel of the Lord at the burning bush. I'm convinced it was the angel of the Lord that went before his people. And the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Either way we look at it, if you take the first few or the second, and those are the only two I think you can logically take, I believe that the Lord is doing his best to get the reader to understand that this angel of the Lord is being pointed directly at Jesus is being pointed directly at a future work, a future redeemer, an eternal redeemer. And so I think it would do good as Christians who are not under the law anymore, but who live under the blood, the sacrifice, and the work of Jesus Christ. I think it would be, Christ, it would be good for us as Christians to examine the nature of the angel of the Lord, to examine the nature of God in this text, and to see what we can take from that. The first thing you need, to he, you need to see from our text today is he is a protector. He is a protector. Look at verse 20. Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way. Exodus 23 goes on to say that Israel's enemies will be the Lord's enemies. This echoes what the Lord said to Abraham. Remember, the Lord said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will what? Curse those who curse you. One aspect of the nature of God that is revealed in the angel of the Lord is that he is the protector of his people. Deuteronomy 31 echoes this sentiment later of a protector that goes before his people. It says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be (coughs) terrified or afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. The prophet Isaiah said that the Lord, uh, said of the Lord that he is the one who upholds us with his righteous right hand. The Lord is with you. He upholds you with his righteous right hand. Psalm 46 once said, He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Ever-present help. Thessalonians says, The one who has called you is faithful, and he will do it. What is it? In that instance, it's everything that pertains to sanctification. The Lord, the one who has called you is faithful, and he will do it. John says he is the protector of salvation. John 10, I will give them eternal life. Here's the protector. Here's my Father. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is my Father. This is the one that protects me. This is the one that watches over me, that guides me that shields me and keeps me in spite of myself. You may say, well, the Lord is protector, and I I believe that. But Bryce, how does that point you to a reformed mindset? Well, every verse I've just mentioned of the hundreds about the protection, and the hundreds, excuse me, about the protection of God, all have some common threads, and they're this. 
The protection of God is given to us by the will of God and not by the will of man. It is not contingent on the strength of man. And just in the few verses I've read, we see the protection of God is uh, almost always, if not always, spoken of in finality. Finality. Never leave us or forsake us. He is ever present. No one can snatch us out of His hand. Friends, He is a protector. And when we take that, we say, thank you, Lord, for protecting me from my enemies. And often we don't realize that our biggest enemy is the person that looks back at us in the mirror. We reject God. We turn away. We pursue sin. We pursue the things of this world. And yet through Jesus, He protects us even from ourselves. That no one, even ourselves, we will not be able to snatch be snatched out of the hand of God. He is protector. He is conqueror. He is conqueror. Look at verse 23. When my, angels, <coughs> when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, verse 27, skip, I know that's a weird stop, but I will send my terror before you and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you and I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. The Lord had determined before it happened that he would be a conquering and victorious king. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound like anything from our study in Ephesians? that said God adopted us before the foundation of the world and in the right time the Son redeemed us and until He returns the Holy Spirit seals us. He keeps us. Does that sound familiar? This was a part of the fulfillment though of the Abrahamic covenant. But it was also a piece of of God's plan of redemption for His covenant people since the beginning. We have this story recorded for a reason. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says that these things were written as examples and warnings for us. The warning is this. The Lord will get His victory and only those who are under His banner will be victorious. The Lord here speaks of a foreordained and promised victory fulfilled through His power and being led by the angel of the Lord. Friends, victory is the Lord's. He is the conquering king. The Bible says that the enemies of God would melt at the sight of Israel. So my question as we examine this text and we examine the nature of God, was it the size of the army that caused the other nations to melt? Was it the might? Their years and years, their hundreds of years of reigning in the land, was that there? <clears throat> was, there exten- was it their extensive knowledge and their tactical ability in war that the people feared? Yes, the other nations trembled because of the success of God's people in conquering other nations. But what were they actually trembling about? Was it the might of Israel or was it the might of their God? It was God who was victorious. It was God 
who was conquering. So even if those nations melted at the sight of Israel, what they were doing was melting at the sight of God. God's bragging here a little bit about what He was going to do. And and we'll see that later, that He actually did it. At a certain level, you have to believe that Israel started to, you know, walk with their shoulders a little bit higher. Walk with a little bit of a swagger. They were beaten down by Egypt. They were defeated. But over time, they experienced victory after victory. And over time, they started to believe in the promises of God. This reminds me of the, of the sports month that we're in. It's called March Madness. It's in this time where college basketball tournaments are played. Specifically, the most important one is the NCAA tournament. It's called March Madness because anything can happen. Often what we see is teams that have either played well all season and have gone unnoticed by the country come into this NCAA tournament and do well. And they're called Cinderella's. Or maybe a team that has not played up to its full potential but you know, catches fire at the end of the season and starts playing well. UConn did this. University of Connecticut did this one year. They were 9-9 nine and nine in their conference, which is not great if you know that. 500 in your conference is not good. And they ended up winning the conference championship. And in the same year, they won the national championship. They had a subpar record, but they caught fire in March Madness. What happens is a, a team starts winning. And they listen to the words of their coach. It's almost like they can hear it in their heads constantly. And and they gain confidence. And then other teams say, you don't want to play such and such in March. They're just, they're on fire. Or they're ready. They're going to cause people trouble. And it's usually teams with the best coaches that play well above their ability. This is sort of the promised land March Madness. God gives His promise. He starts, he's going to start conquering and His people are going to start believing. This is how it was with the people of God then and it's how it can be with the people of God now. We don't have to wait, friends, and speculate about the victory of God. For we know that it has been won through Jesus. We think about the victory of God and we can all think amen, right? We can say it. We can thank it. But it is much more than a victory over Satan. It's much more than bringing us to salvation in our lives. God will get His victory, friends, not just in salvation, not just in defeating the enemy, but in the deepest and darkest recesses in the hearts of His children. Do you know the biggest difference between a successful team in March and an unsuccessful team in March? Somewhere between January and March, the teams start believing. The biggest difference between a successful team in March and an unsuccessful team in March is not necessarily skill, because they're all good, but it's faith. It's faith. At some point, the successful teams start believing, and in some cases, many cases, the unsuccessful teams have often been unsuccessful because they've become mentally defeated. Friends, can I tell you that the victory of Christ for a believer is not just a promise for everyone else. It's a promise for you. When I think about the University of Memphis, we've had, historically, we've been a good basketball team. 
And even though I knew in my heart that Memphis wasn't going to the NCAA tournament this year, I thought, it could be us. It could be us. On a much larger scale, what we have to know is, is that the victory that is found in Christ is not just for pastors who seem like they have it all together. It's not for deacons. It's not for older people who have been in the church for a long time. It's not for kids to have at a young age and sort of forget about in that middle period that we've all been through a little bit and then to sort of catch back as an adult. The difference between a a Christian who trusts in the promises of God and is successful, excuse me, the difference between a Christian who sees the promises of God and is successful and a Christian who sees the promises of God and is not successful is, spoiler alert, trust. It's faith. It's not just a promise for someone else. It's not just a promise for me. If we belong to Christ, we should have our confidence in Him that His promises are for us. The victorious Jesus and the Spirit of God should make the Christian then the most successful and accomplished people in the world. And I believe this with all my heart. Christians, because of the Spirit of God, because of Jesus, should be some of the most successful and accomplished people in the world. Not just by spiritual standards, but even by the world standards. Christians should be the best athletes. They should be the best artists. They should be the best bosses. They should be the best business owners. Not because they are worried about how people perceive them, but because they are victorious in Christ. And because that they have faith and trust that they should do everything for Him to the best of our ability. That He lives in us. We should not skate by on raw talent. We should not be happy with mediocrity. We should not settle for second best. We should be humble, yes, but confident. We should also take this view, especially take this view in our spiritual life. We should not throw away people, but we should expect the Lord to redeem. We should not be trampled by sin. I get so upset at myself, but I get so upset at other Christians who act like they have no power over temptation. Who act like they have no power over sin. Like God hasn't defeated sin and temptation, and He hasn't given you the game plan for you to defeat it in your own life. We get trampled by sin instead because we don't have a high enough view of God and we don't have a high enough view of what He's done in our lives. But we are already defeated at times. Because of His victory, we should not be trampled by sin. We should not be a slave to temptation. We should beat temptation into the ground with the victory that is found in Christ and the plan that He has prescribed for us to do that. It's one thing to practically know the spiritual implications of doing spiritual disciplines. It's one thing to know what they do. Practically know I should read my Bible. Practically know I should pray and study Scripture and be a part of a church gathering. I know I should do those things. I know that these things help me. It's one thing to know all about God, but it's another thing to trust in Him and to apply those things to your life in a way that changes you for the betterment of yourself your church, and all those around you.
Christians, the confidence that you should have today is that we serve a conquering king. And just as the angel of the Lord went before his people of old and he conquered, he goes before his people now. Yes, we die with Jesus at the cross of Mount Calvary. But he died first. He went before us. He took on the actual pain of the cross. He took on the actual wrath of God. So that when we die along with Jesus, all we're dying is to selfishness. All we're dying is to personal things that we must give up. The enemy is defeated. There is... There is nothing, friends, from holding you down from being victorious in your personal life and in your spiritual life. He is protector. He is conqueror. He is commander. Look at 21. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my, na- for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, see that he will, he will, do I. And then he, the, you will get this first person all throughout this mix of that. then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I won't stay on this very long, but he by his very nature, God is boss. He is commander. You may say that you get this point and you easily understand it. I know that Jesus is Lord. But we have practically allowed the world to creep into our worldview, which causes our obedience to and our respect for our commander to waver. It is like a treasonous enemy spy gets into the camp and he places seeds of doubt in our mind and we are still fighting on the right side. We are still fighting for the Lord, but also at the same time, unbeknownst to us at times, because we've let the world into our mindset, into our worldview, we're also fighting for the enemy. But our commander requires absolute obedience. Regardless of cultural shifts and circumstances. Regardless of good times in our lives and bad. There's a story that reminds me of this sort of absolute obedience. It's a story of the last man to surrender in World War II. You may have heard this story before, but he was a Japanese soldier. His name was Hiro Anoda. He was given a specific mission to go to the remote island of Jubang in the Philippines with the order just to survive. That was his mission. Stay alive. He could not take his own life, and he would often even have to survive off of the land. And the premise was this. This is going to be crazy to you. It was to me at least. Only his commanding officer would come get him, but as long as Japan had one soldier to lead, then they were still in the war. That was the premise of sending this dude off to this island during the war. As long as they had one soldier to lead, Anada, however you pronounce that Japanese last name, um, evaded capture and didn't surrender for 30 years. Believing that messages sent to him about the surrender of Japan were from spies, he stayed in that desolate place until finally in 1974 he came out of the jungle and surrendered. He was lauded as a hero in Japan and honestly a fool in the eyes of everybody else. It was foolish for him to obey those specific orders. It was foolish for them to give these orders. But this is a measure of what absolute obedience 
looks like. In our ethics book we're studying on Saturdays, we have discussed this in detail. An important conclusion that we have come to, that you need to come to, that will help you in debating people on ethical issues is is that um, there is no reason or no purpose for an ethical standard worth following unless a morally perfect and eternal God gave it. You really can't even follow subjective standards because you can always say, you're following this according to who? Why are you following this? Subjective standards don't have an objective truth to point back to. If we don't first establish that there is an eternal giver of the law, then there can never be right or wrong. There can never be justice. But we know that God is commander and He gave us the law. And since He gave it, it is worth following with absolute obedience. And unlike this soldier, we will not be put to shame for following His commands. Because the commands of God will never let us down or send us on a fruitless and pointless journey. (coughs) We follow Him. One great example in my own life of absolute obedience and, 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 well, not absolute obedience, but a strict obedience and following the Lord uh, is my friend, Tim. Tim Pena. He's a, he's a coach. He was a coach of mine in high school. He, was, uh, he became a missionary to Brazil. And while in Brazil, he either found out that he had Parkinson's or he contracted Lyme's disease, which was debilitating to him. And so he spent practically the last 15 or so years handicapped. He has to take, he has had to take medicine and he can like move around with the shakes for like a couple hours and then he has to take medicine again and he freezes. He's just frozen. He can't move until the medicine kicks in. He's done this for the last 10, 15 years. I don't know. It's been a long, longer than 10 years, but I can't remember how long. Multiple times being put in the hospital, going down to 140, 100 and so pounds, ready to die. And in this, in this he's, he's doing the, the Saturday morning study with us, and ev- after everybody left, he was going to say, Bri- he, he said, uh, Bryce, I was going to say this, but there was a lot of conversation going on. He said, this is the only reason why I still follow God. Because I know in the end, I will never be let down. Through all of those trials, through, all, through almost death multiple times, through basically being handicapped, For 15 years, he said, this is the reason that I follow God. This is the reason I continue to trust in him. Because he's eternal, he is creator, he is unchanging. And I know that in the end, even if I'm never healed, I will not be let down. Now, through that, the the Lord has allowed him to have an open brain surgery. And he has stimulators like a pacemaker on his head, on his brain, and it's right above his heart. And he can walk and move and talk almost functionally like we all can now. And it's by human hands, but by the grace of God that he was able to do that. But I thought it was telling when a man who had been through so much in his life saw God as commander being something reassuring and not something to be feared, not something to be brought down by, something to be confident in, something to rally behind, something to hold fast to. He is commander. He is purifier. When the angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and the Perizzites <coughs> and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, 
and I blot them out. You shall not go down to them, to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water. And, will, and, I, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. He is, perfu- he is purifier. If you look at the text, you might be inclined to think how mean and how cruel God is. He is saying, I will go and I'll take all these people and I will blot them out. And at face value, it doesn't seem like the same loving God of the New Testament as we have in the Old. But friends, I want to tell you, the other people had chosen their side. They had chosen their team. Their depravity led them to worship other gods. They worshipped other gods. And their worship of other gods was an affront to the deity of God. Their sacrifice to idols was an affront to the singularity of our God. They lived recklessly and free without moral standard, which was an affront to the holiness of God. And this is the God who cannot have this amongst his people. He was a God who was purifier, who was a purifier. So he says, look, I'm going to give you a clean slate. I'm going to make a place for you that is the easiest possible way in your depravity that you can worship me. So you have no excuses. We're not going to have another Garden of Eden, right? Well, the serpent, well, the woman you gave me, we're not going to have the blame game. You know, these people aren't going to be able to say, well, the Canaanites... I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to remove them from I'm going to purify the land. The Lord was going to actively destroy any obstacles to worshiping Him. <laughs> Friends, you must understand this. This part of the story is an image. It's a picture of sanctification. Part of the sanctification process is God rooting out anything that prevents us from being more like Jesus. This is why the early parts of Christian, the Christian life and really all parts of the Christian life are so difficult. Because God is always, if we are following Him, God is always rooting out things that prevent us from following Jesus. It's like a perpetual root canal because we're fighting it always. He is always cleaning, always rooting out, always finding things that will prevent us from following after Him in sanctification. But we need to see something about sanctification. Even though it is a work of the Lord, it is not passive. Sanctification is not passive. He says, I will blot them out. It's a work of the Lord. I will give you victory. But listen, you will destroy their idols. You will not bow down to them. You will destroy the pillars of their temples. Friends, God has won the victory, but we have an active role in the daily fight. Spiritual warfare, which is a major aspect of sanctification, it is not passive. He told us to watch and pray and believe in the victory of God. Whereas justification, which is our salvation, is a passive act. It is all about God. Sanctification is not a passive act. Whereas justification is by faith alone, by grace alone, and faith alone, and Christ alone, sanctification is not by faith alone. The people of God have to work. 
They had to work then just as we do now. Salvation is a work of the Lord. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit. But we are also told to continue to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We also see something interesting about the salvation that it is a little by little process. The Lord says, I'll take them out little by little. I'm not going to quickly defeat them. I will defeat them little by little so you can take hold of the land at the right time so that the land doesn't sit desolate and get taken by wild animals. As it concerns sanctification, all of the people of God are a work in progress. All of the people of God have been given a glimpse of His promises little by little. Friends, it is good that sanctification is not an immediate process. Why would we need to be on earth, number one? Other than to share the gospel. Number two, it's good that sanctification is not an easy process because you won't hear this at fun church down the road, but it's good for Christians to hurt. It's good for people to fail. It is good for us not to be given everything all at once because we learn to appreciate the work that it takes to get it. This is why we live in the most spoiled, stinking society in the history of mankind. Because all the children, and, and even, my, even my generation included, I'm not a millennial, but millennials and my generation included, all of the, be- all of the people, all of the people in, our, in these couple of generations are being given everything just wholesale. Just here it is. Here it is. We don't have to strive. We don't have to work. We don't have to fight. And nothing is important anymore. But the Lord says, I'm going to give you sanctification little by little, moment by moment, so that you can appreciate it. So that you can love it. So that you can cherish it. (laughs) It's good for Christians to hurt. It's good for Christians to fail because it makes us more dependent on God, but it makes us more appreciative of the blessings He gives us. It makes us want it more. It makes us want it more. When we fail, it makes us want to succeed because we don't want to experience failure again. When we disobey, it makes us want to succeed and uh, pursue success because it makes us not want to be disobedient again. It makes the victory sweeter. Little by little, bringing His people closer to Him in an image that looks like Him. The promise, then, of sanctification is prosperity. The Lord says some sharp things. He says, you will not be sick. You will not miscarry. You will live long lives. Um, Now, you need to understand that this this is sort of an overarching idea of the success of the people of God. This is not saying that if you, you and, and most of you are mature enough to know this, but I need you to know that I'm not saying this. It's not saying that if you follow the Lord as he's prescribed, that you will have all of these things 100% in your life. We just know that's not true. What we want to do is we want to be somewhere between Creflo Dollar and the Apostle Paul. We want to be somewhere between Joel Osteen and the Apostle Paul. Way more on the side of the Apostle Paul than Joel Osteen, Okay. But we want to be somewhere between Joel Osteen and the Apostle Paul. Here's why. We want to know that God has good for us. We want to be happy about the promises that he has for us. But also, like Paul said from prison, we want to be content in whatever situation we're in. We want to know that in good and bad, in sickness and in health, that he is with us. He has not forsaken us. 
And our sickness really is not determinate upon some bad sin thing that we've done in our life. It can be, but it is not mostly. Sanctification is a process. It's little by little. There's a neat little note here that you need to know, and it doesn't say it in our verse. But the Lord says, I will give you the Red Sea, I will give you the Mediterranean Sea, and I will give you the Negev. He's promising this, these as their borders. Do you know when that finally happened? Solomon. King Solomon was when those borders were finally reached. Hey friends, sanctification is a lifelong process. You're not done. You're not done just because you reach the promised land or whatever. Because you've reached salvation, you're not done. It's a lifelong process. Hundreds of years later, they reach these borders. The last thing, and I'm not going to stay on this, but two seconds. He is uncompromising. Look at verse 33. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. If you serve other gods, I will sure, it will surely be a snare to you. Can you imagine the temptation it would have been to just like go in and win? The Lord said little by little. Can you imagine? They go to the Hittites. They're like, you're gone, Hittites. You're gone, Amorites. And then they go to the Canaanites and they said, you see what we did, right? Why don't you just surrender? We can come to some peace treaty. We can live together. This is our land, but, you know, we get the best of it. Can you imagine how easy that would have been to just form a peace treaty with them instead of doing what the Lord, it would have been much more humane, right? According to worldly standards, our standards. That's not, what called, that's not what God called them to do. He called them to absolute obedience. Absolute obedience to the instructor instructions of God. Friends, I want to tell you, and I, I had more to say on this, but I will say this, and we can talk about it more at Missional Community Group if you want to. It, it is easy for you to syncretize, for you to sync the things of the world in with the things of the church. And say, well, this is just being relevant. This is just trying to bring the gospel to the people. This is just trying to pull people in. Friends, I want to tell you, and I can say this with absolute certainty. God does not want his church looking like the world. He wants the world or those from the world to look like his church. And he is uncompromising in that. And in the end, he says this. If you abide with them, it will be a snare to you. Friends, you need to know that abiding in the world is a snare to sanctification. It is a snare to following the Lord. It is a snare to being a person that God wants you to be. He is our protector He is conqueror. He is commander. He is purifier. He is uncompromising in his ways. He is the God that we can put all of our hope and trust in and follow and love. And we will never, not once, not one time, be let down. God, you're good. You're holy. And uh, we follow you uh, blindly even, if that's what it takes, because of that. We trust you completely. 
because of your goodness and your holiness and then your other attributes that you share with us. Lord, would you teach us to follow you in an uncompromising way? Would you teach us to obey our commander as you have prescribed? Would you teach us to walk in you, Lord, more every day? We trust you. We love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.